Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. 1867. The Hotel Moss first opened its ornate doors on March 15, 1867. Orville Moss, a man of local fame and generational fortune, was discovered in the lobby, dead, on the morning of March 16th. His body bore no signs of harm nor sickness. The elegant hotel had been booked nearly full the night of its namesake and proprietor's death. Out of 440 rooms, 427 were occupied, yet not one person could recall seeing Mr. Moss that night. Even the front desk clerk, who theoretically should have been present whenever Mr. Moss entered the lobby, dead or alive, could not explain how the owner had appeared naked and shaved clean from head to toe. In the clerk's recollection, the cold, stiff body had appeared in the literal blink of an eye, as if teleported there through some mystical portal. This tragic and mysterious opening night put a silver bullet through the hotel's future success. Many of the first guests, who had booked multiple nights, canceled the rest of their stay, packed their belongings, and fled. Word of the owner's mysterious demise spread like wildfire, and many superstitious or religious folks, who were of great number those many years ago, steered clear of the opulent hotel. Guests who had either never heard the strange story of Orville Moss's death, or who assumed it had a rational explanation, booked rooms in the beautiful, if somewhat neglected, hotel at extremely reasonable prices. Some of these guests reportedly fled in the middle of the night, occasionally leaving behind their belongings and never returning for them. Some, allegedly, never left at all. Orville Moss had a son, Andrew, who took over the Hotel Moss after his father's death. Andrew had also taken over his father's architecture firm and a few smaller interests, but he showed particular attention to the unprofitable hotel. He often stayed in room 349, which was permanently reserved for him. 349 was at the very center, the heart of the Hotel Moss. People described Andrew as a strange character, his very presence was said to frighten children who crossed his path in the hallways. Under Andrew's neglectful leadership, the Moss architecture firm crumbled. Yet, somehow, the unprosperous Hotel Moss continued to operate long after. 1934 The front desk clerk, a fairly new hire with peach fuzz only just appearing on his pale chin, watched the man enter the lobby. He noticed the way the man intentionally avoided his eyes. 
Excuse me, the clerk stammered. Are you a guest? I'm visiting someone, the man stated firmly, without slowing down. He was wearing a heavy wool coat and a black bowler hat. He seemed overly determined to reach the elevator. Ah, uh, may I ask who? I could direct you to- I know where they're staying, the man said. He had passed the desk now, and the clerk began to panic. He didn't know why, but he felt deep within his soul that he should not let this man get in the elevator. This man brought trouble with him. Maybe not for the clerk, but for the hotel or someone in it. He had never experienced such premonitory feelings before, but this one screamed at him from within. Stop, the clerk shouted, surprising both himself and the strange man. The priest, actually. When he turned toward the clerk, the boy noticed a sliver of white peeking from the man's collar. His coat had hid this until he had spun around. I, um, I... You should leave this place, the priest said. He approached the desk swiftly, amplifying the urgency in his tone. There's something dangerous here. Something you don't want to be near, child. I'm 14, the clerk said stupidly, as if somehow this might change the priest's mind. And with the world ahead of you, said the priest. Now go. I would like him to stay if that's quite all right, croaked a rickety voice behind the priest. A rusty squeal followed. The priest turned toward the ominous sound the way a cowboy would turn to his rival in a hundred western movies which were yet to be filmed. Mr. Moss. The priest addressed the hotel's wheelchair-bound owner with respect. Not the admirational type, but the sort reserved for a worthy opponent. Andrew Moss said, Father... Nolan. Mr. Moss, I'm afraid I'm not looking for a place to stay. No. Andrew agreed. If that were the case, you would not have so rudely ignored my clerk. Apologies, Father Nolan said with a nod toward the boy. He wasn't sure who he could trust just now. If I may, sir, I would like to walk around your hotel. I want to see... want to see if the Lord will speak to me here. Oh, Father, your Lord doesn't dare come here, and neither should his stooges. Andrew Moss threatened. Father Nolan immediately launched into the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He backed up to the elevator and pushed the call switch. The iron cage rattled down toward him as Andrew Moss looked on with a crooked smirk. Go on, Father. Do as you will. You have no power here. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. The barred doors of the elevator clanked together as it came to a stop. Father Nolan continued his feverish prayer as he got onto the elevator. Andrew Moss wheeled himself over to the desk. To the clerk, he muttered, Call the police, my good boy. Ask them to remove a trespasser from our premises. I must return to my office. Yes, sir. A minute later, the clerk was on the phone with the local police. Andrew Moss rolled into the private elevator disguised as a closet in his back office. He pushed the lever and rose to the third floor. The priest, he assumed, would either have gone all the way up to work his way down or to the second floor to look for whatever he thought he was going to find. Andrew rolled casually to room 349 and entered. The locked door opened for him without a key, as it always did. He closed it behind him. Father Nolan was on the second floor. He ran from one end of the hallway to the next, feeling outward with his heart 
to sense the evil which reportedly lurked in the Hotel Moss. He had wanted to come here with a team from the various sects of Christianity so they could come to a consensus about what was happening. Was it some low form of witchcraft? An illusion? Or was it actually the malevolent power of a hellish force which had possessed this building? No one else would join him in his quest, though, so he had come alone. Alone and, until now, unafraid. He reached the south stairwell and threw open the door. He ran up one flight of stairs, sweating under his coat. He turned 180 degrees, went up the next flight, and found the door to the third floor firmly locked. He went back down, sliding his coat off his arms as he kicked his way down the stairs in short, brisk steps. He tried the door on the second floor and found it too had locked. He prayed the lowest door would let him out on the ground floor, but found it locked as well. Oh God, please, find me here in this evil place and release me from its grasp. If you'll not grant me the power to defeat the forces here, at least allow me to leave in peace. For the first time in his 17 years of priesthood, Father Nolan did not sense God's listening ear at the end of his desperate prayer. He was used to hearing a faint, calm voice there in the distance. Whether it was the voice of the divine or his own consciousness, he had never stopped to question. For how was he to know the ways God speaks to his children? But this time, there was dead silence in the void. His words went out, and not even their echo returned. Dropping his coat, Father Nolan ran up the stairs again. He passed the second floor, then the third. He paused only momentarily at the fourth to test that, also locked, door, then rushed upward toward the fifth story. This door, the last door at the top of the staircase, miraculously opened with minimal effort from the panting, gasping priest. He tumbled into the hallway and found the fifth floor in pitch blackness. It was markedly colder than the rest of the building below, and probably would have been as cold as the night outside if not for the rising heat from the lower floors. The cool air instantly chilled Father Nolan's skin, and he almost wished for his coat back. Almost. His mind was too preoccupied with escape to worry too much about the temperature. He stumbled forward through the darkness, picturing the second floor from which he had come. He correctly assumed the floors were identical to one another. There were sounds, something slithering along the floor behind him. He lashed out with a kick but connected with nothing. He then realized the slithering somethings were moving across the ceiling of the floor below. When he stopped, they stopped. And when he started up again, they followed. He issued another prayer. This one did receive an answer, but offered no comfort. It said, in a voice he did not recognize, This is not the realm of God. And despite its mysterious source, Father Nolan trusted this answer wholeheartedly. Finally, he found the elevator switch. He hit it and listened to the mechanical whirring and grinding of the rising metal cage which would take him down to escape. He half expected something to reach out of the dark and grab him just before the elevator arrived, but he was undisturbed as it rose into view. The elevator had a dim light mounted near the ceiling. It cast long shadows down the empty hallway of the fifth floor. Father Nolan hurried inside and slammed the gate shut. He pressed the switch to go down, and at first, the elevator did descend. Then, when only his head was still above the fifth floor, 
the elevator screeched to a halt. The priest hit the switch again, and the machine jolted, but did not move. He stood, helpless, caged, and dangling above four and a half stories of emptiness. He shouted, he cried out, but there was no one to hear him. No one who would help anyway. The elevator dropped so suddenly Father Nolan's head struck the light mounted above him. He let loose a primal scream as he fell down, 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 then came to another jolting stop. This one dropped him face down to the floor hard enough to break two of his teeth. He couldn't tell how far he had fallen, but he considered it a miracle he was alive. He opened his eyes, not even realizing he had closed them, and saw a sliver of light near the top of the elevator gate. He hadn't fully passed whichever floor he had stopped below. He peered through the crack, squinting to make out the room numbers. He saw rooms in the 300s, 345, 347, and just within his ability to see, 349, with the door open. Andrew Moss sat in his wheelchair in the open doorway to room 349, staring at him with a bored expression. The instant their eyes met, the elevator plummeted the last three stories to the ground. Father Nolan spent the rest of his short life in a wheelchair too. He never returned to the Hotel Moss and always discouraged any of his colleagues from going there. Whatever went on in that hotel, it wasn't his business. As he had been told, that place was not in the realm of God. 2011 Nat Christensen checked in at the Hotel Moss at one o'clock in the morning. He drunkenly stumbled up to the front desk, dragging his suitcase behind him. The taillights of his taxi flashed the doors with red light as he dug around in his pockets for his wallet. Did you book in advance, sir? The clerk, a young woman with a face tired beyond its years, asked. Hmm? Oh, uh, yeah. Check on her Christensen. Chris... Christensen, Nat mumbled. His face showed he knew how stupid he sounded. Ah, Christensen. Yes, I see you, the clerk said. She raised her eyebrows, then quickly lowered them. Her eyes flicked to Nat's to see if he had noticed her reaction. Why had this man been given the room? 249 was supposed to be... Well, he hadn't noticed. His vision was unclear beyond the reach of his meaty, flat fingertips clutching his wallet in a fist on the counter. Staying two nights, it looks like? Yep, I'm meeting a friend tomorrow. Then it's one more night here, then it's... All right, sir, she interrupted. Here's your key. You'll be in room 249. It's written on the card. Room 249 is... is on the second floor. She said this slowly, but Nat was glad for it. It gave his addled mind a chance to tuck the information away. Thank you, he muttered. He turned his dragging suitcase toward the elevator and strutted that way with undeserved confidence. That tired girl at the front desk had liked him, he could tell. She knew which room he was in, in case she wanted to check on him later. He chuckled stupidly to himself as he stepped into the elevator. He punched a number. He thought the number was two. To his credit... Two is the number he aimed for, but his meaty, flat fingertip found the three instead, and he didn't think twice when the three button lit up. He didn't even notice when the elevator dinged, 
but then continued rising. The elevator dinged once more, then came to a slow stop which temporarily convinced Nat Christensen he could fly. The doors opened, and Nat stepped out onto the third floor. He had stayed at a million hotels before. So long as you were on the right floor, you only had to pay attention to the last two digits of the room number. He saw that rooms whatever 45 through whatever 01 were to the left, and whatever 46 through whatever 88 were on the right. He took a peek at his room card, saw whatever 49, and went right. Nat reached room whatever 49 and slid his card in the door. The mechanical latch clicked and a tiny light glowed green as he had expected it to. He was not as surprised or concerned as you are when the door opened at his push. Without a second thought or care in the world, Nat Christensen entered room 349. He balanced his suitcase and felt for the light switch, but there wasn't one. Nat wondered for the first time if he had had too much to drink. He found his way across the room to the curtained window and pulled the curtain back. Unlike the usual standardized hotel curtain or blinds, this one felt heavy and smelled ancient, like the reference section full of books too old or delicate to check out from a library. It also smelled like smoke, indicating it had witnessed a fire. With the strange curtain out of the way, the city lights poured in. Nat looked around the room, then put his hands to his temples and squeezed. Come on, man, pull it together, he groaned. Why had he drunk so much on the flight in? When he looked around what he thought was his room, it looked like he had time-traveled back a hundred years. The fixtures and furniture were sparse and decrepit. The bed was wide enough for him, but not nearly long enough, and it didn't have any sheets or pillows, just a mattress on an old wooden frame. A rocking chair sat patiently in the corner, and an oil lamp rested on the bedside table. The sturdy dresser against the opposite wall completed the set. There was no TV, no clock radio or alarm, no mini-fridge or microwave, not even a telephone. He had gotten the room at a fantastic rate, but he had no idea it would be so spartan. Nat released his head and tiredly accepted the room's condition. He felt like he could fall asleep anywhere. The naked mattress would do for one night, then he could request a different room tomorrow. That would be all right. But before he could lay down, he had other business to take care of. Nat hobbled to the bathroom, or at least the door he assumed led into the bathroom. He wasn't sure what to expect anymore. He opened it and reached in for a light switch, but again found none. This should be illegal, he muttered as he opened his phone, turned the screen's brightness all the way up, and placed it on the counter inside. It lit up a tiny toilet with a big wooden box mounted above it. The box had a skinny chain dangling from its side. Nat had seen this sort of device in movies before, but never in an operational building. He shook his head, unzipped his fly, and lifted the toilet lid. A horrid stench arose from the toilet bowl. Trying not to vomit, something he had already been concerned might happen, Nat pointed his phone screen at the toilet and saw a book. A Bible. Probably the Gideon's Bible someone had left to spread the good word. Only, they usually left them in a dresser drawer or in the bedside table. This copy had been urinated and defecated on for Lord knows, literally, Nat thought, how long. Unfortunately, Nat's condition begged immediate attention, and he dared not touch the nasty book to remove it from the toilet. 
He peed in the sink instead. Relieved, he started thinking a little straighter. He was still very drunk, but no longer had the nagging sensation in his bladder distracting him. He could not stay in this room, that he knew for certain. He would take his suitcase and... Where's my suitcase? He had left it by the door when he came in, but now the doorway was empty. He had just come from the bathroom, so it couldn't be there. He checked around the bed and the dresser, but it wasn't there either. Oh boy, he thought. Am I so wasted that I left it in the hallway? He pulled the door open to check, but it stuck and clinked loudly right next to his ear. The chain lock had been set. Nat hadn't set it, though. He was almost certain. He slid the chain, but quickly discovered another anomaly. The metal slit where the end of the chain connected to the door was supposed to have a circle at one end so the nub at the end of the chain could be removed. This one did not. He could slide the chain back and forth, but there was no way to take it off the door. He didn't understand how it had been set in the first place. A muted bump came from the dark room behind him. Nat spun around. The rocking chair was swaying gently, one of its rockers causing a floorboard to creak. Is there somebody here? Nat asked. The rocking chair slowed, then stopped. The oil lamp turned on with a pop and a hiss. Nat choked. The mattress, now illuminated in a pale yellow glow, was deeply stained a reddish black in the middle. Somehow, the light felt like an invitation. Someone or something wanted him to get on that mattress. Nat got his cell phone back out, found the hotel's phone number in his recent calls, and called the front desk. It rang twice before the clerk's sleepy voice answered. Hotel Moss, how can I help you? Yes, please. I need to get out of my room, but the door's locked in. Room number? The clerk asked. 249, Nat replied, glancing at his keycard again. But you're in 349, the clerk said. No, see, my card worked on the door, so it must be... Please get on the bed, Mr. Christensen. It will be over soon. The voice still resembled the tired clerk's, but she sounded mildly angry. I'm sorry, what? Nat asked. He squeezed his eyes shut, trying to repress his drunkenness. I said get on the bed. It's too late to do anything else. There were footsteps behind him. Nat spun around. You're going to die now, Mr. Christensen. Please do not make it any harder on yourself. The voice now came from the room, not the phone, and it bore no resemblance to the clerk's. It was deeper, an elderly man's voice. No one was staying in any of 349's neighboring rooms. The only one which had been booked that night was 249, directly below it. But of course, that room was empty since Nat had pushed the wrong button on the elevator. Unbeknownst to him, this mistake had not simply been a drunken error. It had been plotted and influenced by forces far beyond the influence of alcohol. A housekeeper noticed a suitcase in the hallway outside of room 349 the next day. She ignored it. That room could trick you, and she knew it. But when the suitcase was still there the following morning, she told the hotel manager. He was far less superstitious than most of the staff, but still opened the door to 349 with hesitation. 
The rotten apple and spoiled dairy stench which belched out of the cracked door was enough to warrant a call to the police. They found Nat Christensen laying on the uncovered mattress which was saturated with his blood. His arms, legs, and ribs were all splayed outward. Yellow-stained pages from a Bible were stuffed into the dissected man's mouth. The detective who performed the first cursory analysis of Nat's corpse mistakenly thought the page's discoloration was from age. Back at the station, his lieutenant would ask if he had any leads to consider, or even a hunch as to who might be responsible for the gruesome murder. As far as who actually opened him up, I have no idea, but I know who's responsible for his death, the detective said. Oh? asked the lieutenant. It's simple, sir. It's that damn hotel. Chalk another one up for the Hotel Moss. 1912 Harold Palmer and his wife Arlene could not have been more excited. Their son Charles was making his return voyage from England the next day, and in preparation to meet him at the port, they had booked a night at the cheap but gorgeous Hotel Moss. Their high spirits kept them from minding the hotel's lack of electricity, despite nearly every other hotel having it by then. Their moods helped them ignore the dilapidated facilities, the rusted rings in the bath, the obnoxiously loud plumbing, even the smell of mildew which rose from the mattress when they lay down that night. By the 1910s, the hotel's individual rooms had fallen into various states of disrepair. Only the exterior and lobby were maintained well enough to meet the late Orville Moss's standards. Many of the rooms on the top floor were not suitable for out-of-town guests anymore. They were primarily used by opium addicts and prostitutes. Andrew Moss, in his mid-sixties then, seemed to relish these illicit behaviors occurring in his hotel. He was once stopped by a reporter in the street who asked him if he was aware of his hotel's declining reputation and what he was going to do about it. Andrew had smiled at the reporter and simply said, In my hotel, hell is above. The Palmers didn't know about any of the activities happening three floors above them. They stayed in room 249, well distanced from the fifth floor. They only became concerned for what other guests were doing when noises from above woke them around three o'clock in the morning. The husband and wife opened their eyes simultaneously when a sound like tumbling rocks thundered above their heads. Did someone fall out of bed? Arlene asked her disgruntled husband. That sounded like a whole family falling out of bed, said Harold. Arlene pressed her arm across Harold's chest and gripped the front of his nightshirt. She whispered, Wait, I hear something else. Guided by instinct, Harold's eyes went to the iron vent on the wall across the room. His wife was correct. Some strange sound was echoing down at them. It started as a light crackling but quickly intensified to the roar of an open, raging flame. Fetch your coat, dear. There's a fire, Harold exclaimed as he tossed the sheets away and pivoted on his rear. His feet felt in the darkness for his slippers. His fingers felt for an electric lamp that wasn't there. He swore in frustration. A voice, old and ragged, whispered through the vent. Bless me, Lord, for I have sinned. A final confession in the face of death, Harold wondered but then another voice rumbled behind the vent. Arlene found Harold in the dark and held his arm tightly. The two waited wordlessly and listened. The second voice spoke in a language neither of them recognized. It spoke mostly in consonant sounds with very few vowels. 
This made the deep voice sound like it was hissing and growling through monstrous teeth. I rejoice in the pleasure and glory I have brought you, the ragged but human voice said. Then, are you pleased, my lord? The non-human voice growled, then responded with more punctuated hissing. Arlene was struck by the strange notion that it was speaking in reverse. Both she and Harold had forgotten the fire. The sounds of crackling flames had faded away. The human voice interrupted the other, suddenly asking, Who's listening? Harold placed his free hand over Arlene's, and she squeezed his arm ever tighter. There were footsteps above, the sound of a door opening, then squealing shut. Then silence. We should go, Arlene whimpered. That's enough. We're safe behind a locked door and no one could possibly know we overheard whatever cultish evil is. A heavy fist pounded on the door to their room, cutting Harold short. He looked in the direction of the door, his eyes having mostly adjusted to the darkness. Three more knocks rattled the doorknob. Harold guided his wife toward the bathroom. He wanted to put another door between them and whoever was outside the room. A noise similar to the low rumble of the wind one might hear when standing in an open field was echoing inside the vent as they passed beneath it. Outside the room, keys jingled. Arlene started to whisper, almost in a chant, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Harold shut the bathroom door and was horrified to find it did not have a lock. There was nothing inside the bathroom he could use to prop against the door either. Give us this day our daily bread. The latch clicked, and someone pushed against the door. Harold tried to keep it shut as Arlene continued her forlorn prayer. Stop, a voice in Harold's head commanded. It sounded like the one that had come from the vent, the one which had spoken in an ancient tongue. Harold held fast. When Arlene finished the prayer, she started over. Our Father who art in heaven. You have to let us in, said the ragged voice. It was just on the other side of the bathroom door which Harold was barely holding shut. It's too late. You have to let us in. It won't hurt. Arlene shrieked, then prayed faster. Do not resist him. The other voice filled Harold's head. He will take what is due. He's telling the truth, said the human voice. It never goes well when they resist. One way or another, he gets what he wants and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Harold forced the bathroom door all the way shut as Arlene cried out the final line. The latch clicked back in place and all pressure from outside ceased. Harold leaned against the door, panting and listening. The sounds from outside, the voices, the low wind, they had all gone quiet. Their room door shut and locked. From listening, Harold determined the man who came in had gone away. Suddenly, Arlene shrieked again, but this time it was not a sound of terror. It was a tragic sound, an expression of grief. She sank to the floor in between the toilet and bath and began to sob. Arlene, what is it? Harold asked, still not quite willing to leave the door. Oh, it's Charles, Arlene cried. Charles isn't going to make it home to us. That's enough. You can't possibly know that, Harold growled. He didn't know why his wife's words made him feel so angry. Was it, possibly, because he knew she was right? The sound of the low wind returned, but only in their heads. It drowned out any other thought, 
as it spoke directly to them from from somewhere beyond. It's it's going to sink. He's going to be drowned. That's impossible, Harold said, his voice softening only slightly. You know what they said about that ship. They said it's unsinkable, remember, dear? He left the door and went to her. The wind in his head swirled, mocking him. He grabbed each of Arlene's hands and hoisted her up, looking straight into her eyes, pushing away the foreign thoughts. He said, The Titanic is unsinkable. Nineteen fifty four. Rosie Rowe may have been the Hotel Moss's most famous guest. She was certainly the most famous person to have stayed in the falsely lavish building prior to nineteen fifty four. She had just come from the office of her agent slash boyfriend. After the roaring success of her last film, Rosie should have been receiving calls from every director and producer in town, maybe even in Hollywood. But her phone had been silent. She had asked Raymond, her agent slash boyfriend, if he might have any insights. Well, dear, Raymond had said, looking smug despite his effort not to, it seems you could be on the brink of greatness, now wouldn't you say? Yes, that's why I'm wondering why the world seems to have moved on without me, Rosie replied. Please don't get hysterical, Rosie, it's business we're talking about. Raymond straightened his suit jacket and leaned closer to her over his desk. A girl like you might get so popular you require a better agent. Oh, Raymond, I would never... Hush, please. You may say that now, but you don't understand the way your world might change. There is a way, however, that you could prove your undying commitment to me. Show me you'll want me, no matter what, and marry me, Rosie. Something about the way Raymond said this had sounded ominous, vaguely threatening. Perhaps it was the words, no matter what. Rosie didn't like undefined parameters. She had feared such a proposal might be on its way. Raymond, bless him, was actually right on the nose. She had been fantasizing about being catapulted away from her dry, conceited, and casually manipulative agent-slash-boyfriend. He was smart to try to lock her down now. No, Raymond, I don't want to get married on an ultimatum, she said flatly. Ultimatum? No, Rosie, this is an opportunity. It's a chance for you to put action where there's only been words. Has he been rehearsing that line all day? Rosie couldn't help but wonder. She said, firmly enough to be clear, no. Darkness flashed in Rosie's eyes and she was vaguely aware of the earth rocking beneath her feet. The back of her head hurt. So did her jaw. Her eyes fluttered open. They slowly focused on Raymond, still leaning over his desk with his reddened knuckles clenched in a hard fist. He was openly grinning. He let her get up, unimpeded. She waddled over to the desk, looking completely dazed. Her eyes appeared to wander as she took in her surroundings. She looked lost. She looked so out of it that Raymond didn't even notice her pick up his three-hole punch from the desk until it was already flying toward his eye socket. Rosie would have won an Oscar for the performance. By the time Raymond could bear the pain to look, she was gone. Rosie had run to the first hotel in sight, the Hotel Moss. She went in prepared to beg for whatever tiny broom closet the hotel might have available at such short notice. She was surprised to find she could just about have her pick of the second or third floors. She had always liked corner rooms. They were usually nearest to the stairwells, so she chose room 388. The higher up she was, 
the further she was from Raymond. She found her room hospitable enough. The mattress was a little thin and musty-smelling, and the pillows were too soft. But at least the shower had hot water. Once she was clean and dry, Rosie realized she only had her previously worn clothes to put back on. She laughed aloud, realizing with delirious pleasure what an insane sound laughter is on its own. She put her underclothes and dress back on, then climbed into bed. She considered turning the bedside lamp off, but decided against it. Being alone in the dark in this strange place felt like an invitation. An invitation? Where had that idea come from? A door slammed down the hall. It made Rosie jump, then laugh again. She certainly felt giggly that night. She told herself it was because of her excitement over finally leaving Raymond. Her face still throbbed with achy soreness, but his punch had woken her up. She had been sleepwalking with him for so long, she needed something terrible to shake her awake. She was actually glad the something terrible was only a sock in the jaw. She had no doubt Raymond was capable of more abominable things. Another door slammed. Loudly. This wasn't just someone letting the door close unhindered. This was someone actively slamming it. Rosie sat up. This time, she didn't laugh. Something, whatever had told her to keep the light on, told her to stay alert now. And down the hall, a door slammed again. She had a horrible idea. She pictured Raymond, blood trickling from his injured eye socket, moving down the hallway, going door to door, searching for her. What if he had attacked the front desk clerk as he had attacked her and stolen all of the keys to the third floor? It sounded like he was midway down the hall now. If she moved quickly, she could beat him to the stairwell and get out before he found her. Rosie grabbed her purse and the room key and padded over to the door where she slipped into her shoes. Her hand trembled as she undid the chain and turned the doorknob over slowly enough to keep it quiet. A door slammed again. Then another. He was picking up speed. How he was unlocking the door so quickly, Rosie had no idea. She opened her own door and darted into the hallway, sparing only a quick glance down toward the slamming doors. As her hand gripped the door to the stairs, she froze. There was no one else in the hallway but her. A door halfway down opened slowly, then slammed shut. As she watched, it creaked open once more and slammed shut again. She settled into the character of a cheery person, and when the door opened again, she issued a friendly, Hi there! The door stayed open. In fact, this time it continued to swing inward, past the point where it had previously stopped. Is someone there? Rosie asked, still in character. Real Rosie was shaking inside. The inner voice which had warned her of the invitation and told her to stay alert was screaming something incoherently in her head. It was muffled by a new... Voice? What is happening to me? Rosie wondered. Her mind had seemingly become blank, left only with binary choices. Only, she felt an unnatural temptation toward the things she wouldn't ordinarily choose, like Eve presented with the fabled fruit. Rosie felt like she was staring the serpent straight in the eyes, seeing the evil and malintent there, and yet still felt a curious compulsion toward the apple. She wanted to look inside the dark, open room down the hall. Before she knew it, she was almost to the open door. 
The hallway's dim lighting made her feel like she was on the set of a haunted house movie. She had done one of those not so long ago. She had rather enjoyed the spooky ambiance of the set, and now felt the same strange excitement even though she knew this wasn't a movie. This was real. It had real consequences. 349. That was the room with the open door. As she stepped in front of its open doorway, Rosie was filled once more with fear. A blanket was lifted from her mind and she was instantly aware of her own lunacy. Why had she gone alone to this dark room in the middle of the night? Why had she gone toward the slamming door instead of running away? As she stared into the shadowy room, which looked like it hadn't been updated since the previous century, she wanted to scream. To run. Not just back to her room, but down the stairs and out of this terrible building full of so many evil secrets. It was whispering those secrets to her now. The gateway to hell is in 349. When she broke free of her trance and turned to run, Raymond was there. One side of his face was swollen so badly it hid his eye. She must have broken his eye socket. He said nothing as he shoved her backward into room 349. Rosie stumbled, barely catching her balance before she would have fallen to the floor. Raymond stood outside the room, frozen with his hands at his sides, and the door swung itself shut. It didn't slam this time. The latch clicked docilely, as if the room's frustration had been satisfied. That's insane, Rosie thought. A room can't be frustrated. A room can't be satisfied. The gateway to hell is in 349. The door wouldn't open when she turned the knob. She peered through the peephole and saw Raymond had vanished. She wondered if he had actually ever been there. She couldn't find a light switch anywhere, then realized there were no light fixtures in the room. There was, strangely, an oil lamp sitting beside the bed. Such an item seemed dangerous to keep in a hotel. One small mistake with a thing like that could burn up everyone as they slept. The gateway to hell is in 349. Was that it? Was she supposed to set the room on fire? Was that how she could escape? And if so, was it worth the cost of all the other guests' lives, if there were any? As if in answer, the lamp sparked and glowed. It lit up the corner where Rosie had thought she'd seen the outline of a rocking chair. She saw now that it was actually a wheelchair bound with rust. The new light also cast a tall shadow in the shape of a man against the wall, standing behind the wheelchair. Who's there? Rosie asked. This had to be some trick of the light. There must have been someone standing. Standing where? She could see the whole room and she was clearly the only person in it. So who was casting the shadow? The gateway to- I know! I know about the damn gateway! Rosie shrieked. She wanted the voice to stop. The voice of the shadow man. The lamp flickered. Rosie asked, Who are you? I am the gatekeeper. She saw the words in her mind more than she heard them. What was this? A nightmare? Had Raymond actually knocked her out cold? Was she laying, comatose, on his office floor or a hospital bed? That was it. She was dreaming. This wasn't real. It couldn't be. You're not real, she said aloud. There's no gateway, and you're no gatekeeper. She was dreaming. That's how Raymond could appear and disappear so quickly. That's how the door had closed on its own. That's why there was an oil lamp in the empty hotel room. 
Her certainty of this gave her a nearly drunken confidence. The other voice, that of the shadow man, made no effort to convince her otherwise. When Rosie had had nightmares before, they very often ended with her falling. She would be jolted awake in bed just before her body hit the pavement or water or whatever had been beneath her in the dream. Ignoring the tall shadow which eagerly watched her, Rosie went to the window. She looked down as she slid the window open. Three stories should be enough to give her that gut-twisting sensation, she thought. Once she had the window open far enough, she leaned out into the chilly night. The sidewalk below was empty. It looked so real. The chill of the air against her sore cheek felt real too. Rather too real. This wasn't a dream. It couldn't be. The stinging pain in her face provided her with a constant unwelcome connection to reality. Shocked by this sudden realization, Rosie pulled back. Two strong hands grabbed her and spun her around. It was Raymond again. The shadow on the wall should have belonged to him, but it moved of its own free will. The wheelchair had turned toward her. She felt the eyes of its invisible driver watching her. As Rosie screamed, she saw the shadow shove its arms outward, pushing. And like he was playing follow the leader, or Simon says, Raymond pushed too. The back of Rosie's head struck the window as she went through it, graciously knocking her unconscious before she fell three stories to the cold pavement below, where she would lay until someone found her stiff, mangled body the next morning. It would be determined that she jumped from the roof of the Hotel Moss, since all of the windows above where she was discovered were closed. 1867 To my son and sole heir of my fortune, please read the enclosed instructions with great care. My time here is rapidly drawing to a close. The grand hotel which I have built and which bears our great name is a vessel for more than commerce. It is, at risk of oversimplification, a place where our reality brushes against another. It is, my boy, where the barrier between earth and Sheol, as hell is called in Hebrew, is razor thin. Materials describing how this phenomenon came to be can be found in my study. They were gifted to me by an immigrant monk upon my purchase of the property on which my hotel now stands. The monk begged me against constructing anything here. He seemed very afraid of the powers which dwell here. I am, as I assume you are as well, totally unafraid of the supernatural. For how can it be that man might be allowed to construct a building upon ground which is apparently so sacred to the underworld? How is it man can interfere with a place of such purported power? It stands to reason that said power has been greatly misunderstood or overestimated. You may ask, as did I, whether the stories of hell might simply be fiction. I assure you, my son, they are not. Hell exists and contains great power. Power of such magnitude that no earthly wealth can compare. This is why I have seen to harness the forces of hell. I have, in the heart of this building, which will no doubt belong to you soon, created a gateway, a portal through which power and payments may flow. With this connection to the other side, I have become, in essence, immortal. The writing of this note will be the final act of my physical body. Once I am finished, I will forsake my human form as a sacrifice to the Dark Lord. In turn, he will appoint me 
as a daemon, an immortal being of near infinite power, second only to the Dark Lord himself. With this power, I will guide and protect you until it is your turn to do the same. You must follow the guide and the monk's materials to keep the gateway open. I still wonder whether he knew those instructions were tucked into the documents he gave me. When it begins to wane, you must energize the gateway with a sacrifice. Only then will you receive the gift of immortality when your earthly time is up. Only then will you be able to join me. Forget my other businesses and affairs. This, the gateway housed in this grand hotel, is all that matters now. Whenever you sense the gateway fading, you may notice when my voice becomes weak in your mind. Bring a soul to room 349. To keep you free from suspicion, I will handle the rest. I will drag the sacrificial souls to their final destination. As a note, target souls weakened by the torments and vices of human folly. Those of stronger faith and conviction may not fold to my power so easily. Allow them to pass, unless they should interfere with our duties. I will save time by foregoing the traditional sentiments. Allow the trust I am instilling in you to exhibit my affection. My eternal devotion, Orville Moss. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram at The Warning Woods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into The Warning Woods. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.